come into a foundational passage for a large sections of First Peter uh, as we deal with one of the mega themes. We have three mega themes that we are going to be looking at. They're going to be uh, intermingled as we go through this. One of those mega themes that we talked about here in First Peter is our relationships. And these are relationships within the body of Christ. Uh, also within our family, we're going to have sections of scripture talk about relationship between husbands and their wives. Uh, we have a relationship with those in authority over us. We're going to deal with that uh, both in the secular world and within the religious community uh, in terms of, of your relationship with with the elders, pastors, elder bishops in the churches and their relationship with you. Uh, and so we're going to look at those but there's a foundation that we want to cover and that is going to bring forth all of these instructions and clarify them and bring uh, them into uh, reach. Uh, because frankly, if we try to do all of this on our own strength and by our own just determination, we will likely fail. And so we have to lay this foundation and it is a very solid one that we want to put down today uh, while we're not going to address all these other relationships today, of course, uh, those passages are coming many weeks from now. This is an important message that we're going to refer to pretty much every time we come to a relational uh, passage talking about how uh, different peoples within the church should uh, engage with one another. We're going to come back to this verse. This is going to be our reference verse. This is going to be, have to be relayed every time so we understand that these relationships have this as the foundation. And so uh, this becomes a pretty important passage. You're going to hear it again and again and again throughout this book because of what it is. It is the, the basis of godly relationships, including with our government, uh, with our employers. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about within our families, and, and again within our church. And so while it is focusing on one particular one here, it really is the, relation, the foundation for having a right relationship throughout all of those within our family, within our church, and within those outside of the church. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 1. We have just got done with a study of what it is or who it is that we rely upon for our redemption. And the focus has been on Jesus Christ and the one who was chosen from before the foundation of the earth, uh, that we might be brought into the family of God uh, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that it is available to all who would believe. That uh, if you, we believe, and this is how we express our faith, this is where our hope relies, is that if we trust in God, we're going to trust in Jesus Christ. That was our foundation for in, in general terms. Now we come in specifically, and we're going to see the result of that. And so this is one of the consequences, uh, one of the rewards, one of the effects, if you want to use any of those words, they're all appropriate, uh, of trusting in Jesus Christ. And if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what should happen to me. And it is what God does in me. But again, like salvation itself that requires us to participate in that process by faith, we are called to participate in the work of God in our life. It is not unilateral. That is not that God does it all and we are just sitting back passively and just having it flow over us. 
Uh, we are much more active agents, and thus, when we see a passage like this, we recognize that it's not only a, an opportunity for us to glorify God for what he has done for us, but also it requires a response from us of, of how are we going to be this, that God has made us. God made us this because we trusted in him. Now, how am I going to be that? How am I going to put that into action into my life? And so we come to verse 22 of chapter 1. And we are not going to get very far. I'm going to read a portion of scripture here again because I want to tie this all together. And I don't want to um, uh, just chop it up so much that we lose track of the total message. So I think it's important that we read it regularly. So let's begin verse 22. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, I know the chapter division, we're going to cross it. And you might think, well, that's going to take us into something else. Not really. And so remember, the chapter divisions, verse divisions are man's addition. Uh, and so we're going to come into it and, and see the connection here. It says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower fails, falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And so we have this this result, the result of being redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ is a twofold uh, work of God. And so the one we're going to focus in on this morning is, called, is, is described by word, uh, translated in our English as you, we have, you have purified your souls. That we have purified our souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And thus we have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ seeking something. We have sought the purification of our souls. Now we, and then by the end of this, we've talked about that we're going to love the brethren with a pure heart. And really all of the text before us until we get into chapter 2, verse 3, is going to be delving into what it means to have, and, and what is the, the means by which, how do we get our souls purified? How do I have a pure heart, a pure soul that uh, comes to me by obeying the truth? And we're going to talk about the role of God's truth. That's obviously a big part of this passage. The role of the scriptures in that, the role of the Holy Spirit in that. These are going to be the next few weeks' messages. We're really going to look this morning, and, and a little bit out of order in verse 22, we're really going to tie the first phrase to the last phrase of how we express this. How, what is the evidence of this? And it is in our relationships. And so the basis of the relationships that we have within our lives, if we want to make them godly, if we want to make them biblical, need to be founded upon purified souls. That we have purified our souls in Christ Jesus. By our faith in Jesus Christ, we have purified our souls. Now we have the word pure again later on in this verse. So we got to take some time to distinguish, these are two different Greek words uh, that are both translated as purification, but they are very different concepts. 
And so we want to address this very quickly so we have an understanding of what we are saying as we come into this. The first word for purification here, it, it talks about what you might think of as cleansing, of removing contaminants, of remo whether they be uh, moral contaminants, uh, you would think of it as washing away sin. The idea of purifying my soul, of getting rid of that which contaminates our soul. Uh, and that is very different than the word later on used for pure. And so, because uh, uh, I can, the, the word for pure is not, not mixed, it's not divided. Uh, for example, I can take, uh, and I like to do this, I, I like to take cranberry juice and then add it to some other sweeter juices like apple juice. And, and you can buy it now in the store. Did you know that they have cran apple? Well, that's not pure anything, is it? It's not pure cranberry juice, and it's not pure apple juice. They have combined the two. And so that second word for your pure heart is about being one thing, being purely one in heart that is undivided, un, 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 unmixed with other things. The idea of purification of your soul, that word is about renew, removing contaminants. And so when I take nice, pure cranberry juice, mix it with nice, pure apple juice, I still have a pure product in terms of it's not contaminated. It's not, uh, there's no dirt in it. There's no germs in it. There's, there's, there's nothing unsavory in it. It is, it is clean and it is drinkable and healthy. Uh, but if I take it and I, and I add other things in there, now I have contaminated it, and you don't want to drink it. If I put bacteria in it, you know, put all those horrible things like kombucha. No, I know some of you drink that. I don't know how, but you do. Um, if I put these contaminants in there, well, now nobody wants to drink it. If I come along and, and throw, you know, dirty water in there, and you say, well, I'm not going to drink that because it's contaminated. It's not pure. And so that's the first word. That we're going to purify ourselves. We're going to have it cleansed of its contaminants. And this is so important. Since you have cleansed your heart, your souls, of all of this, and this is the moral cleansing. This is also used for ceremonial cleansing uh, that we see in the Old Testament, that we are cleansed by this, by the by the blood, that, that we are the removal of sin, the removal of the stain of sin. And we find this term, that, that since we have purified our souls by trusting in Jesus Christ, and it's referenced here by focusing on obeying the truth, and we're going to reference that down the road, but one of the obedience we're going to talk about today, through the Spirit, insincere love of the brethren. And so we have this concept that we have engaged ourselves. Do you notice that? It's not a passive verb there. Since you have, it's not, it doesn't say since you have been purified or since your souls have been purified. It says because, since you have purified your souls. That when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are participating in this process of purification. It is the blood of Jesus Christ applied that does the true purification, but it is we that are there applying it. By faith, we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to us. He shed it, he paid for it, but we apply it. And so there's, we are agents within the purification of our souls. We are not the determining one. In other words, we're not the ones that are capable of cleansing it, but by, and that's what the next words talk about, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. 
And so the opportunity for cleansing was there for anyone. But it is necessary to immerse ourselves into that cleansing fount for it to have effect upon us. And so if I come across this bath and I have an opportunity, I'm filthy and and I've come off a, a hard week of work and haven't baths, I've been out in the wilderness, and I come across a wonderful bath, and I say, well, that's capable of cleansing me, but it requires me to do something. I have to get into it. It can have all the wonderful soaps and aromas and, and, and scrubbers and everything else, but as long as I stand outside the bath and look at it, I haven't been cleansed. It has not removed any filth from me. I have to participate in it. Now, does that mean that, that I, by my will, have cleansed myself? No, it is the water and the soap and, and all of those agents that are doing the cleansing, but I have to participate in that process. And the idea that we are, that we are passive, completely passive in that, is just foreign to the Scriptures. And this is one of those passages that points to it. You have purified your souls. How? By obeying the truth. You came to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and life, and said, I will receive the cleansing, the purification of my soul by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is a cooperative effort. He is the cleansing agent. I am the applicator, if you will. Now, do I do that alone? Um, no, the Holy Spirit says helps us in that, right? He comes and convicts us, he convinces us, he has all that. He is there certainly helping in that process. Uh, but yet, uh, it, I still have that faith that I have to place there. And so, um, the verbiage here and the word or the syntax here in First Peter is very particular that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And so we come to this and... Now, this is a foundation. I have a purified soul. It has been removed impurities. It removed the, the, the contaminants out of my heart, out of my life. The word soul in the Hebrew literally means out of my breath. Uh, that, that man, that, that's why it says that God breathed in our nostrils and man became a living soul because the word soul and breath are... In, intimately connected. Uh, literally, it's throat, that the breath comes out of your throat. And so you're, that you're living being. As a living being, you are made pure. You are cleansed of your sin. Your sin is washed out. And now you have an opportunity um, to live differently and have different relationships based upon the purification of the blood of Jesus Christ in our life. And this is so important, and I want to tie this to 1 John 1, 9, which is an instruction not to unbelievers, but to Christians, that if we, Christians, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we need that actively going on in our life on a regular basis so that we can understand the foundation of all of our other relationships. That as I come to God and humbly recognize I sinned, and I confess that before you, I'm asking for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, that as I receive that cleansing, that then I turn to these lateral relationships and I recognize that they have the same problem that that relationship has. And that is, but, uh, but slightly different. There's one, vari- var- um, there's one variant, there we go. There's one variant, and that is that God never sins against us, Right? He is always faithful. He is always righteous. He is always just. 
And so if my relationship with God requires this regular confession and cleansing so that it can be viable and vital and, and, and growing and, and, and uh, bountiful, if I want that, I recognize I have responsibility. If we want that laterally, we recognize two things. One is that uh, it takes two. And that means that I have to be ready to, like I humble myself before God and seek cleansing for times when I have done, violated that relationship, I need to do the same thing laterally. I need to be willing to humble myself and ask for forgiveness to come and, and, and to want this cleansing to happen in my relationships. Uh, and of course, because we're dealing with other mortals, with other creatures, uh, they have a similar need. They have a similar need to be, to be forgiven, to be cleansed of that which they have done you wrong. And this is why the Bible calls us at both ends. It says, don't let any root of bitterness take root in your life. Don't let that bitterness, that, that means an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to cleanse a relationship, don't you let that settle into your soul, into your life. Because remember, you have to get cleansed from God on a regular basis. <laughs> Every time you sin against how many times have I sinned against God? Oh, oh I, I'm afraid to count. How many times I've had to go to him and, and ask and confess sin that he, and ask him to forgive me again and how faithful he is to do that and how wrong it would be not to have that same spirit that says if they come to me and confess, I am willing to forgive. I'm willing to cleanse this relationship. Now, you might say, but I'm at a disadvantage that God isn't because I don't know their heart. They could be saying it and not meaning it. Uh, whereas God knows whether I mean it or not when I say it to him. And that's why the Bible talks about fruits of repentance, that to help evaluate our relationships, there should be evidences or fruits that they're genuinely sorry for that which has broken our relationship. All of this necessity uh, of, and we see it in the church discipline model, uh, we see it in, in all these other avenues of how, within our homes, within our church, within our society. How do I keep these relationships pure? How do I keep them right? How do I keep them unstained and broken? I don't want them to have just a trail of broken relationships behind me. Um, as much as it depends upon me, I am willing to humble myself and ask for forgiveness, and I am willing to grant forgiveness and cleansing should it be sought from me, and, and then I will look for evidences of repentance from them, and I will seek to provide evidence of repentance from me. When we talk about fruits of repentance, we usually demand it of others because they violated our trust. Seldom do we put that, that onus, that responsibility on ourselves because we violated their trust. Do you notice how it's always a one-way street? But when we recognize how we became pure by the precious blood of Christ and by the faithful response of God cleansing us from our sin as we confess it, we realize that now I have to, whatever I demand of others needs to be demanded of myself, and so if I require them to have fruits of repentance, I should show fruits of repentance myself. I cannot say I'm sorry, please forgive me, and then 
keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And yes, Jesus instructed Peter. How, you know, Peter said, how many times? Seven times? Uh, does this keep going on? He says, no, even up to 70 times seven. 490 times. Well, but there should be evidence. There should be some fruit of repentance. There should be some change. Repentance means to change. There should be a change going on. And while I look for it in others who come and say, please forgive me, and, um, and now we go through a process of restoration. But if there is none of that, and they just keep doing it, and, keep, and with every intent to keep doing it, I have a problem in our church discipline model. Uh, I, I struggle with people say, come and say, oh, I'm sorry I did this, and then never show up to church again. They want us to forgive them, and then, but they don't want to restore the relationship. And can you imagine that going on between you and God? I would like you to forgive me, and then I want you to forget me. Is that what you go to God for when you confess your sin and he cleanses you of your, of your sin, of your unrighteousness, and he purifies your soul? Do you then expect to have a, a, a distant relationship with him? No. The expectation is that that restores the relationship, and now we can move forward. And since we have purified souls, Peter says, I want you to love one another with a pure heart. And that you can see the engagement that we have with Jesus Christ's shed blood, that he shed that blood for us, cleansed us. Now we are in a right relationship with God. We're going to be cleansing those relationships between us. And so if you have offended me, I have a responsibility to go to you and say that with the hope that you will be sorry, that you will ask and confess that and, and want restoration. Similarly, if I have offended you, I have a responsibility to go to you, not wait for you to come get me. And so it cuts both ways. And so there's no excuse. Nowhere in the scripture do you have an excuse to not pursue right relationships in your life. Whether you are the victim or the victimizer, you have a responsibility in that equation to do this part. And we do it out of a purified, because we understand what God has done to purify my soul. That it required both of us. There was no passive agent there. They were both involved. God was involved sending his son, died, shed his blood to purify us, to wash away our sin. But we had to apply that. We had to come and lay hold of that provision of God. We had to bring it into our life. We had to participate. And so it is, as in every relationship, it takes two. And we both have to have that premise. Now what happens if I am a believer, but the person I'm dealing with is not a believer? Well, now we have a very different expectation, I would hope. The expectation is quite different, because now as I go to confess, I don't expect forgiveness, but I'm still going to make that confession. I'm still going to acknowledge I did something wrong, and that I need forgiveness but we're doing it as a testimony to them that we might see them come to true forgiveness, that they need the purifying of souls, of their souls, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not through me, 
not by forgiving me, but, and I can't fully restore a relationship with them because they're not right with God. And so uh, we know that it's going to be strained until they do. But we still have responsibility there to make things right. And we're going to see that throughout Peter. That you have responsibility to your government, to your governing authorities. And, as, and if you think yours are bad, uh, I want to remind you the governing authorities that Peter was dealing with were the ones that crucified him and his Lord. That's the governing authorities he was dealing with and telling the people to engage with in a godly fashion. And so don't think there's any government, some government along the way that that doesn't apply to. Uh, and so we come to this, and we purify our souls by obeying the truth. Now, with purified souls, I take that foundation, and I use it in all my relationships. And that's why we come down, and he references twice here. Uh, and both references are, while they're translated different, are referring to the same thing. And we see in, in this, through the Spirit, it says, insincere, we're going to study the Spirit I'm not sure if it's next week or the week after. I'll look at my notes. But through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren. And this word sincere is another version of the concept of purity. The word sincere literally means without wax. Uh, and so it's a pottery term. And so you're, you're not broken and then, uh, or cracked and they put wax in there to cover up the flaws. You are unflawed in this. You're without wax. It's, it's a complete that you have a, a, a true, genuine love of the brethren. And I want you to notice that this isn't you loving the brethren. That's going to come out in the last phrase. It is in sincere love of the brethren. And so you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And it's, so you have three elements involved in your purification of your soul here, right? Three phrases, three prepositional phrases. So you have, uh, in obeying the truth, that's your part. Uh, we recognize that. I have to obey the truth. And, and then through the Holy Spirit, that's the, the one that is enabling me to fulfill the requirements of God. And then we have in, and again, like in obeying the truth, in sincere love of the brethren. And so we have this dual expectation on us. And so we came to Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ, but there was another agent involved. The other agent were, other, were the brethren, who are now your brethren. That you are the recipient of the work of other Christians. And if we went through and shared our testimony thoroughly here throughout this room of everyone who's come to know Christ, they will reference someone who led them to Christ, whether it's a parent, a pastor, a camp speaker, a sibling, a friend, an enemy, <laughs> uh, a relative, uh, whoever, a Sunday school teacher that led them to Christ. Uh, this is the way God works. And that's why we have a directive to the church, to the believer, to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded. So we have this directive that we, that we are the agents that God's going to use. And so our obeying the truth 
involves the gospel through the Spirit, and we are the benefactors of it, and also now commissioned to it. Cuts both ways. Again, this is that dual aspect. I am the recipient, the benefactor, and now I want to benefit others. I have been benefited, now I want to benefit others. And so in this sincere love of the brethren that I have received the purification of my soul, I want to seek it for others as well. That we be made whole, flawless, without hypocrisy. That we have the genuine love of the brethren in our midst. That that is necessary for the propagation of the gospel. One of the worst things that happens for the gospel to go forward is for Christians to be unloving to each other and to the world. Uh, there is, you do incredible injury to the gospel. And thus we are called to sacrifice for others. Our enemies do good to those who abuse you. Don't curse them. Do good to them. That is the instruction we have. What are we doing? We are communicating a love that is of the brethren, a sincere, pure love, that while I don't agree with whatever it is I have an odds with you over, um, whether it's personality or politics or, or whatever, um, or that you just don't like me and have treated me badly, uh, I can overcome those and share the gospel with you. I can be loving toward you, even as you're nasty to me, even if you're violent toward me, even if you make my life difficult day in and day out. Um, every day I go to work, or every day I'm in this house, or you know, wherever it is, I am going to express a loving relationship because of what God has done in my life. Because someone did that for me. Someone put up with my sin. And the disgusting things in my life and said, I love you enough to share the gospel with you so that I could be purified in my soul. And so then we go and we keep that in our mind. We keep that fresh. And we remind ourselves, I have a purified soul because someone led me to Christ. Christ is the one that purified it. But that's the cleansing fount. But I, and I certainly participated in that, but there was another agent. There was one who brought me there. So we're going to see that, our role there. Now, having recognized that as the foundation, what do we have as a command? What is the obeying the truth here extended? And this is the last phrase. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. So we are called, and, and if you... You need to divorce the word love from what you think of in terms of this world as your feelings. As something you turn on and off like a spigot. Um, oh, I love you, I don't love you. You know, and, you know, we used to take flowers and she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me. And sometimes that just means that just over time, sometimes she loves me, sometimes she doesn't. Um, it's not temperamental. We're not talking about anything like that. It's not something that, that varies and goes up and down and, and goes from love-hate. No. Uh, the love we're talking about here is an unconditional commitment. No matter what, I'm committed to their welfare. This is the love that God has for us. Unconditional commitment to our welfare. 
to us being uh, cared for and our needs met and God knew our need. And he spent an exorbitant price to meet that need, but yet he would not force it on you. He offers it to you. This is the love that we are called upon. So when he says that we are now to love one another fervently, that there is a depth and a breadth of love that we are called upon that the world really doesn't understand if they haven't had their souls purified. Out of a foundation of a purified soul, a right relationship with God, a soul that has been decontaminated by sin. And we're going to see that list a few weeks from now uh, when we get down to chapter 2. We're going to see some words that describe what contaminated souls do that we should not. How we should love one another out of this decontaminated soul fervently. Uh, that is with, with energy. It's not, again, this is not a passive thing. It is going to involve work, effort. You don't do things fervently by sitting on the couch. You just don't do it. If you're going to fervently do something, you're going to be very active at it. You're going to be determined to do it, uh, that nothing can sway you from doing it. That I'm going to pour energy into doing it with all my heart, soul, and strength. That I'm going to focus as my task. Oh, that we would love one another fervently. That we would be determined to do it. That nothing can dissuade me from doing it. That I'm going to pour myself into this endeavor called loving the brethren. And the way to measure that is not by loving the people you like. Right? Because that's easy. Loving the people you like is easy. That's not a problem. I kind of enjoy that. I don't have to work at it. The concept of fervently is about work. How hard do you work at loving people you don't like? Even in the church, it is certain that just among this number that you have a variety of personalities, you have a variety of opinions and, and perspectives, you have a variety of, 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 of enjoyments that vary, and vary substantially enough that you can honestly say, well, I really don't like you. But that doesn't give you a right not to love them. In fact, that person is the measure of whether or not you have a purified soul and are loving one another fervently. It is the one that you have to work at to love. That is the measure of the purification of God, of, of your soul before God. Do you really understand that that's the one? I have to work at loving them, and, and I'm not going to give up on that. I'm going to just keep doing that and keep doing that. Hopefully that person isn't your spouse. But if it is, you're going to have to work at it. <laughs> Hopefully you married somebody you liked. Um, but it could be your kid or your grandkid. I don't have to like them all, but I'm going to love them all, whether they're lovable or not. Similarly within the church, that as we do in our family, we do in our church, we're going to love one another fervently. We're going to be unconditionally committed to your welfare, and whether I like you or not. And that means fervent. That means I'm going to work at it. 
And the amazing thing is the more you apply yourself to work at these things, the more those, those dislikablenesses just fade away. They become less and less important. Because you applied yourself fervently to the work of loving. And loving will always transcend disliking. It will just make them fade away. They will become idiosyncrasies that pretty soon you kind of just take and you kind of enjoy them. Well, they're different than me. They're, they're, they're kind of nutty. They're kind of weird. And it's okay. I love them not in spite of them. I love them, period. I don't necessarily have to love them because of them either. That's not the end result either. It's simply, I love them, and, and I just don't even see those. And when we go to 1 Corinthians 13, and we begin to understand how, what kind of love God calls us to, it's a love that overlooks those dislikes. Period. And we're not talking about superficial things, I hope. You know, I just don't like the way they do their hair, or they have no fashion sense, whatever. Hopefully, if you have dislikes that are inhibiting your love, it's something more substantial than that. Usually it's in personality, you know, and, and sometimes behavioral. I don't like the things they do, uh, but I can still love them. I can still engage them on, on, on the basis of love and sh- show them a genuine caring for their welfare. And this is so rare. It has become so rare in churches. And the world knows it. That's why the world keeps pointing it out. Why don't you guys love each other? You know, when churches divide, when churches split, when churches have have all these things, what is the ultimate reason we have all this contention in the church is because we don't work at fervently loving one another. We don't work at it. And we let these things divide us. We don't humble ourselves. We don't do what Philippians tells us. We don't esteem others better than ourselves. And yes, I, and as soon as you look down your nose at someone and you think you can critique them and tell them that they're weird, uh, well, maybe you're the weird one and never noticed. As soon as we start looking down on others, we begin the process of destroying the, the opportunity to love them. That's why the Bible says esteem others better than yourself. That means consider them worthy of your efforts to love them. Fundamentally worthy. Not worthy in their behavior, not worthy in in what they are, but worthy in who they are in Christ. They are worthy. God loved them. I will love them. And that can be applied to the whole world. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so this word fervently isn't just love them a lot. It's work hard, concentrated effort at loving them. And I tell people in premarital counseling, I said, I know you've been dating, you're all loving and all this, but let me tell you something, it's going to become, it, it is hard work to sustain love, even with people you like, considering, and then considering people you don't like, it takes extra work. 
Do not disassociate the word love from the concept of work. You have to work at it in your marriage. You have to work at it in your family. And guess what? You have to work at it in your church. Consciously applying effort and energy to love people that I may not like. That's love one another fervently. How are we able to do that? By a purified soul. That our very living being has been decontaminated by the blood of Jesus Christ and now I can do the unthinkable and I can love my enemies. I can work at having a relationship with those that annoy me to no end. I'll apply myself diligently to that place because that is really the, the determining factor. Am I growing in this area? Now remember, this is a foundation. Now the command. The command is love one another fervently and then it's qualified. There's a qualifier of your love and that is with a pure heart. And this is a different word for purity, as I said. This is a pure heart of, of unmixed, undivided. It's your whole heart. You're going to do it not with reservation. Well, I have a divided heart. I'm, I'm half this and half this. And I really don't want to love them, but I will love them. No, 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 no. You must have a, your wholeheartedness to this. With your whole heart that I choose to love. I choose to be to be committed to your benefit um, no matter what. Unconditionally, no matter what. You maltreat me, I'm still 100% committed. I am not 80%. It's not an 80-20 mixed heart. It's not a 70-30, 50-50. No, none of that. 100%. With my whole heart, I'm going to love my brethren. That those who have shared in the purification of the blood of Jesus Christ, that I should be able to wholeheartedly love them. Can I wholeheartedly love the lost? And we're going to talk about our relationship with the world that's somewhat different. As I said, your expectations are different. You have to have some reservation. You have to recognize that there is great risk involved um, and if you're going to have a wholehearted love for them, you better be prepared to have everything on the table in terms of them being able to destroy. And when people go out with the gospel and die, we call those martyrs. They loved with their whole heart the lost. So before you say we're going to love people with our whole heart, beware of what is required of you. Because when you love with a wholeheartedness, with a pure heart, unmixed, you're opening yourself up to extraordinary pain that they will not reciprocate, that they will spit at it, that they will attack it. They will attack that wholehearted love. Makes them uncomfortable. Many of them don't know how to receive that kind of love. They, they misinterpret it sometimes. There are a host of reasons why. Some of it out of guilt. Some of it out of uh, uh, 
whatever's gone on in their history. But when you love someone in this capacity with a wholeheartedness, uh, unmixed heart, a pure heart, be prepared. It's going to require much of you, hence the word fervently. And it's also going to expose you to a lot of injury. We have some nice poetry out there. It's better to have loved and lost to have never have loved at all. We have those nice little sayings out there. And we can, uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to rely upon those, um, that's fine. Uh, but the fact is, is that God's love is our example. How much has he loved us? And yes, he has loved those people who has cursed him. He has loved those people who crucified his son. He loved those people that today martyr his saints. He died for them too. He wants them in the family just as much as he wanted the people they killed in the family. And yes, the martyrs have a precious place before the throne of God in heaven, uh, but there's also the worst of sinners that are there. Because remember that a guy named Saul participated in the murder of Stephen. But God loved him and said, I, I'm going to use you. Do we have that kind of oneness of heart with God and in ourselves toward one another within the church? Certainly we should have that. That I have a, an unreserved love that I'm going to work fervently to demonstrate toward you. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to mix this, mix, mix this up in my life that I'm only, well, I'm going to half-heartedly do it. No, with a pure heart, with, a, with, a, <laughs> with the, the, the entire heart, with one objective, and that's to glorify God in your life. Yeah, me glorifying God in your life. And thus glorifying God with my life, with my life, into your life. This is that pure heart. And this is the obedience that comes. We're going to see some other uh, effects and some other uh, aspects of the purification of our hearts, of our souls. Uh, but one of the things that happens is that we have a single heart. And it's not a heart of stone, right? The Bible says, I'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It's a, it's a tender heart. We're called to be tender-hearted toward one another. That means that you have access. I have, I'm not holding back. I'm not reserving myself. I'm not protecting myself. I am letting you in. And I know that for some out of the histories that are in their lives, have a very difficult time doing that. To others, it comes very easy, very simply, uh, and because they haven't been burned very much yet. And that's why those young children have just so, such open-heartedness until they get burned and burned and burned and they get betrayed by those that should be caring for them. And this is why God gives such a strong statement. Oh, don't you dare stand between a child and its God. 
his or her God. You keep those little ones from Christ by the way you maltreat their, their trust and their love um, is better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the sea. Better you be dead than do that to a child. And so we work at this. It is one of the primary evidences of the purification of your souls is your love of one another fervently with a pure heart, with, a, with all your heart. Oh, that it would be said of this assembly and every assembly of Christ that we really work at loving each other. Oh, that that would be our testimony. It is the primary evidence here in Peter that Christ has redeemed you, that you are purified, that you work hard to love one another with all your heart. This is Peter's desire. It is the foundation of all relationships. We're going to look at specific things. And that, that love for others with all my heart that I'm going to work at looks different in different environments and settings and in different relationships. I love my wife with all my heart fervently differently than I love some of you with all my heart fervently, don't I? Then I love the lost with all my heart fervently. It looks differently, and Peter's going to address how it should look. And what are, the, what are the things, how do I work at loving my wife differently than how I work at, at loving uh, my children that's different than how I work at loving my coworkers that's different than how I work at loving the, my friends that, that, I, that work is different. And we're going to examine that work as we come to those passages. But this is the foundation. Do you love one another fervently with a pure heart, not half-heartedly. Not that I'm going to sit here and if I like them, I'll love them. No, no. The ones you don't like, you should formulate a plan. <laughs> Today, how are you going to work at loving them? Well, I'm just going to leave them alone. They will never have odds. That's not it. You failed. Purify your souls. With purified souls, obeying the truth in, through the Spirit, in the sincere, I've been a benefactor of the love of the brethren already. Now I'm going to love others, my brethren. The one another here is the believers. So let's start here in our home. Let's start here in the church. We're going to love one another. Working hard at it. I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard at it. With all my heart, with a pure heart. This is the hallmark of Christianity, and we want it to be the hallmark of our church. And I challenge you to put in your mind those around you, whether because of circumstances, age, personality, likes or dislikes, interests or, or non interests, that we commit ourselves today to each other's welfare, that we'll work hard at it and we'll do it with all of our heart. Oh, that we would do that. And we'll have a church that will glorify God and that will attract others to it so fast because this is what the world desires. They have never seen it. 
Oh, that we would show them the evidence that our souls are truly purified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the power of your forgiveness, of your cleansing in our life through Christ. Lord, we are ashamed to say that we have frequently withheld that same forgiveness and cleansing from others who have asked it of us. And Lord, we pray you might forgive us for that bitterness, that spirit that is not of you. And Lord, we pray also for forgiveness of maltreating those that we wrongly have esteemed ourselves better than them when you have called us to do otherwise. Lord, forgive us for that pridefulness that inhibits fervent love. Lord, we pray that you might convict us when we are unloving. That you might remind us as you have today to work hard at loving this family of saints with all our hearts. That we will hold nothing back in reserve. That we will not shelter part of it for our own protection, but that we will do so openly, fully. Lord, we know that we can't do this of ourselves. That's just not in us, that our human nature is self-seeking, self-interested, So, Lord, we pray again that you might cleanse us, purify our souls, that we can obey your truth more and more, that we can walk in your spirit better this week than last, that we can love one another as you have called us, as you have cleansed us for that very purpose, as others have loved us when we were so unlovable. That we might come to that cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray not only for us to love one another within this local assembly, but you have called us to love the brethren throughout the earth, all those that call upon your name are followers of Jesus Christ. We pray that we might not close our eyes or ears to their needs. That we might not um, distance ourselves or stand aloof from them. That we might, again, demonstrate our love for you by loving them. We pray saints in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.